I'm Barry Weiss, and this is Honestly. We're good. We're ready when you are. I think I'm pretty good, so we're rolling. Thursday afternoon, I sat down with former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice at Stanford University. Condoleezza Rice, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to be with you, Barry. I had planned to talk to Secretary Rice about mostly domestic politics, 2024, growing isolationism, the changing Republican Party. But obviously, given the war in Israel, I ripped up that script. I was so grateful for the time to sit down with her in this moment. After all, Secretary Rice not only served as National Security Advisor and Secretary of State through five Gaza wars, she also led our nation as National Security Advisor on 9-11. As one of the most powerful people in the world at a turning point in American history, Secretary Rice knows firsthand about leadership amidst unthinkable crisis. And that's what I wanted to talk to her about today. We also talk about how this war might play out in the coming days and weeks, about whether Hamas has killed prospects of a two-state solution, or whether that can be revived, about Iran's crucial role in aiding Hamas, about the prospect of Israel's normalization with Saudi Arabia, and about the dangers of America pulling back from the world stage. Stay with us. Did you know that Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the country? It has more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers. Spring has finally arrived, and Fast Growing Trees is here with fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more to liven up your house and your yard. Fast Growing Trees makes it incredibly easy to order online. Your plants are shipped to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever. So you can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home. You'll find the perfect fit for your climate and space, all without having to hire a landscaper or to drive around to nurseries in your area. Fast Growing Trees has plant experts to talk about your soil type, landscape design, plant care, and everything else you might need. And this spring, Fast Growing Trees has the best deals online, up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code HONESTLY at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com when you use the code HONESTLY at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code HONESTLY. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Listeners of Honestly have probably heard me talk about Sapir, a quarterly journal edited by my friend and former colleague Brett Stevens, and for good reason. Sapir is home to thoughtful, heterodox analysis on topics we care a lot about on this show, foreign policy, domestic policy, education, the Middle East, and much more. With Israel at war and rising anti-Semitism in the West, including at our most elite universities, Sapir is more important than ever. Its current issue, called Friends and Foes, takes a deep, hard look at the people and principles that we can count on to counteract dangerous cultural and political trends near and far, and those that we can't. I recommend Danielle Haas's article on the human rights establishment. Haas was a senior editor at Human Rights Watch for over a decade, 
and she offers an intimate inside view of how human rights NGOs have lost their way and how far they have strayed from their founding missions. Check that essay out, along with the rest of Sapir's current Friends and Foes issue at sapirjournal.org slash honestly. That's S-A-P-I-R journal.org forward slash honestly. We had this conversation scheduled for a while, and I had a very different kind of conversation planned. I planned to ask you about 2024, growing isolationism in the Republican Party, about all kinds of things. Um, But my plans changed in the wee hours of Saturday morning when I began to get text messages from friends in Israel saying something absolutely terrible had happened. That was when Hamas launched the worst massacre on the Jewish people since the Holocaust, And we now know exactly what happened. Hamas, which rules Gaza, streamed over the border. They came by truck and by car and by foot and by paraglider and by boat with one goal, which was to kill as many Israelis, Jews, of course, but also other people as humanly possible. The reporting that I have done this past week and that we've seen all over the news and certainly all over social media is unlike anything I have ever seen in my entire life. And the crimes that they have committed are unspeakable. You know this area of the world incredibly well. When you were Secretary of State and National Security Advisor, you were in charge during five, well, I guess we call them flare-ups, but some wars, some sort of less than wars in Gaza. How is what we are watching this week different from all of those things you oversaw when you were in the government? Well, I was absolutely shocked when I uh, read the news on Saturday morning and when the extent of the barbarity and the brutality began to to come out. Uh, You're absolutely right. I was there for, I would say, five, even five-plus Gaza crises during my time as National Security Advisor and as Secretary of State. But they were uh, missiles being fired into uh, Israeli cities uh, along that border. Zderot is a name that was very often on my desk as Secretary of State because it was often under fire. But this was very different. This was an invasion of uh, Hamas and uh, uh, Pij, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, onto Israeli territory to kill Israeli citizens, to massacre them, to uh, cut the heads off of uh, babies. Uh, This was untold brutality and like nothing we had seen uh, in that regard. And I think we have to call it out as something very different because um, unlike the, the times before when Iron Dome or the Israeli um, IDF able to perhaps uh, even uh, proactively avoid or deter a major attack. This time uh, it succeeded and it succeeded in horrific fashion. I think the question on everyone's mind is how this happened. How was Hamas able to carry this out? Of course, one of the answers is Iran, um, but that is sort of a policy and strategic question that's going to take weeks, months, maybe years to answer. I think a question that is more answerable in this moment is how we got here ideologically, how we allowed the normalization of a group among many smart people in the West that literally calls for the genocide of Jewish people in its charter. 
We're sitting here on Stanford's campus right now, and I want to read to you the first statement that this university offered from the Student Affairs Office on October 9th, two days after the massacre. Stanford University as an institution does not take positions on geopolitical issues and news events. It took less than 24 hours for Stanford's former president to condemn the war in Ukraine. Stanford also issued a statement from the president of the university on the day of January 6th. It was only after tremendous pressure from faculty and students that the interim Stanford president, Richard Saller, and the dean sent out an email a few days later that said, as a moral matter, we condemn all terrorism and mass atrocities. This includes the deliberate attack on civilians this weekend by Hamas. Why did it take so long for a university, one of the greatest universities of higher education in the world, forgetting America, to issue a condemnation of sheer terror against innocent people in one of America's greatest allies in the world? And what does it reveal about the moral rot at institutions like the one we're sitting on right now? Well, let me start with your first question about uh, Hamas and uh, how anyone could think it anything but a terrorist organization. Obviously, it is actually declared a terrorist organization by the United States government, by all decent governments around the world. Uh, it is an organization that doesn't even uh, recognize the right of Israel to exist. And uh, it is an organization that is dedicated to uh, the destruction of the state of Israel and uh, to the extinguishing, in a sense, of uh, Jewish identity uh, in that state. And so I can't answer for those who uh, somehow did not, uh, after what had happened there, reflect on what even the international community has called Hamas. I remember... Barry, when I was uh, Secretary of State and Ariel Sharon decided to withdraw from Gaza. Uh, I remember when uh, Hamas won a quote-unquote election. And I remember at that moment that uh, the world came together, even Russia and the European Union and others, to say, you have to recognize the existence of the state of Israel if we are going to do any work with you. And so Hamas has long been on the list of uh, terrorist organizations. Um, I am glad that at Stanford, our president and uh, provost issued the statement that uh, did come out. Universities are complex organisms. Mm. I used to be provost here. They're complex organisms. Of course. And uh, there's always a lot of weighing of what to say and, and so forth. I did say to someone who asked me, I said, look, this, this actually is not a communications challenge. Uh, because um, it's a pretty this, low bar when you're a, being asked to this, condemn this. This was a terrorist attack, and it was a horrific terrorist attack on civilians. And it wasn't even just a terrorist attack. It was kidnappings, and it was uh, abducting people and threatening to execute hostages and summarily shooting people uh, at a, a, a festival, a music festival. And so... This was nothing but a terrorist attack, and it's not hard to say we condemn terrorism. Universities are complex entities. I think that the statement that uh, our provost and president uh, did make is a good one, and I will stand by that one. I will say we here at Hoover spoke as well. I attended the vigil 
that was um, put on by the uh, Jewish community, but not just the Jewish community, people here who wanted to show solidarity with uh, the people of Israel. Uh, by the way, Americans were killed, of course, in this as well. There was me- there's dozens and of also dozens American of hostages. Americans who are, are missing. And so um, I, I think I made it clear where I stood. Um, Hoover, we've uh, sent out a a statement to our Hoover community, and uh, this very evening we are going to gather on the front steps of the Hoover Tower to uh, acknowledge the horrors of what took place. There are student groups uh, at some of our most elite universities, including Harvard. I'm sure you saw the statement signed by 32 Harvard student groups. There's a clip I just watched of students at another university singing, Glory Be to the Martyrs. Do you think that this is going to be a watershed moment to expose the nature? Like these, when I see things like this, these people are not advocating for the liberation of the Palestinian people who languish in Gaza under the jackboot of Hamas. They are celebrating and glorifying bloodshed on some of the greatest college campuses in the world. Do you believe that this will be a watershed moment in terms of the moral outrage toward that position? Well, it can be, but it also has to be accompanied uh, by what you mentioned earlier. People have to be educated about what's going on here. The idea that Hamas is somehow the great liberator of the Palestinian people or that Hamas is somehow representing the legitimate uh, interests of the, of the Palestinian people is so far from the truth. If, if anything, Hamas has time and time again crashed and dashed the legitimate hopes of the Palestinian people. Because every time we get close to a place where perhaps the Palestinians can have their state alongside the democratic state of Israel, uh, Hamas, uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and uh, their Iranian sponsors find a way to destroy that hope. So anybody who wants to say to me, this was about the the plight of the Palestinian people, I say, yeah, it is about the plight of the Palestinian people and how Hamas has never, ever cared about the plight of the Palestinian people. It's done everything that it can uh, to keep the Palestinian people in bondage. Speaking about educating people and the amount of misinformation out there, you can talk to a very educated person and they'll talk about the occupation of Gaza. But Gaza, of course, has not been occupied since Israel pulled out, as you mentioned, under Prime Minister Ariel Sharon in 2005, which was your first year as Secretary of State. They dismantled the 21 Israeli settlements that had existed in the Gaza Strip. They handed them over to the Palestinian Authority. And of course, this was the key test of the idea of land for peace, right? That Israel would hand over land and they would get peace in exchange. Formerly did it, of course, with the Sinai Peninsula, giving it back to Egypt. Now, of course, the land in Gaza was handed over, but the peace never came. And I wonder, looking back on it, of course, I don't want to do Monday morning quarterbacking here, but looking back, was that very paradigm, that idea of land for peace, a mistake And was it a mistake for Ariel Sharon to have pulled out of Gaza? I am not going to question Ariel Sharon. Ariel Sharon, uh, no one could question his bedrock commitment to the security of the state of Israel, his love for Israel. I remember his Herzliya speech in 2003 when he said, it pains me as a Jew 
to know that we will have to divide Judea and Samaria. I do not wish to rule over the Palestinian people, he said. And that said And Judea off, and Samaria, of and course, uh, also referred to as the West Bank. Exactly. And, and all of a sudden, that set off uh, the possibilities of a, a two-state solution supported by a wide range of Israeli people, a wide range of ideological views. When, when the, um, the deal was on the table in 2000 with um, President Clinton, uh, having uh, brought uh, to Yasser Arafat a possible deal. That was largely the labor side, uh, the, the Israeli liberals that were, uh, were backing that deal. What Ariel Sharon and later Ehud Olmert would bring was something that was backed by Likud, backed by the Israeli right. Uh, I had an interesting conversation about when Sharon actually went into the Gaza to tell the, and he went personally into the Gaza to tell the Israeli citizens they were going to have to leave. And one of them said to him, Prime Minister, you personally put that mezuzah above our door because you told me that I was rightfully extending the state of Israel into our historical lands. And now you tell me I have to leave. The IDF was prepared, if necessary, to forcibly take Israeli citizens out of Gaza. They did. And they, when it was, they did. I personally got contributions from private Americans to buy the greenhouses that Israeli citizens had put there. And within a week, they were all destroyed by the terrorists in the, in the region. So anyone who wants to say that Israel has not tried to help Palestinians toward a different life in Gaza is simply historically wrong. And so I would hope that what we could do in our environment, which is an academic environment, is to, once passions cool even a little, let's really rehearse the history of land for peace I still think a Palestinian state is the best hope, ultimately, for security for both peoples. But we're further away from it today than we've been in a very long time, and that is thanks to Hamas and the massacre of, uh, of innocent civilians. I've always identified as someone on the center left when it comes to Israeli politics. I have always supported the idea of a two-state solution, the idea of Israel occupying another people, it seems to me that it ultimately would corrode the very soul of the Jewish state. And yet we see what happened in Gaza, and how could anyone not come to the conclusion, I'm kind of thinking, this is what I'm thinking in my heart this week, that if Israel had pulled out of the West Bank, Judea and Samaria, as the Israeli left has long wanted, that there wouldn't be another terrorist statelet at its border, and ultimately the total destruction of the Jewish state. Well, that what is, is the way out of that paradigm? Well, well, that is what we were really trying to work toward. And, and Barry, I went 24 times to Israel and uh, the Palestinian territories to try and find a way toward some kind of solution to this, this crisis. Um, I went to Nablus after there had been terrorist activity there and helped Salam Fayyad, a decent Palestinian leader, 
to build the equivalent of a boys and girls club there. I went to Bethlehem to help them open a hotel to try to give the Palestinians a tax base for a better life. I do think that there are reasonable and indeed a decent Palestinian leaders who do see that future. But there hasn't been enough courage to say to the Palestinian people, uh, when it is a deal, both sides will have to give. The Israelis will have to give land. Some of those settlements will have to be given back. But right of return isn't going to happen. Thousands and millions of Palestinians are not going back, quote-unquote, to cities that are now Israeli cities. And that inability to come to grips with the truth of how we would get to a two-state solution was, for me, extremely frustrating. But I can tell you, at some point, we're going to have to try again. And this has a larger context this time, because the other thing the Iranians couldn't stand was that Israel was actually coming to to the end of the state of war with its Arab neighbors. Oh yes, I want to get there very and, much. And uh, it had already happened with the uh, it already happened with the UAE and Morocco and others. It had long ago happened with uh, Egypt and and Jordan, and now possibly with Saudi Arabia. And that would have been the end of the Arab pretense that Israel did not belong in the Middle East. And who would have been isolated? Iran. And so uh, when I hear and I see statements like, well, we don't have evidence that the Iranians were uh, involved or whatever, everybody knows that the Iranians are the funders, the trainers, the equippers of Hamas. And Palestinians' Islamic Jihad, which was a little bit of a joke early on, they weren't very good. And even Hamas used to say, oh, Pidge, you know, they keep blowing themselves up. That was until the Iranian Quds Force took them over, trained them, and turned them into the fist of Palestinian uh, terrorism. And so uh, there is a history here to be written. Israel has not been perfect in this regard. You know that when it's come to settlements and et cetera. But there is so much to this story about the effort that Israeli leaders have made to make it possible for a Palestinian state, and that some decent Palestinian leaders have made. That story needs to be told. And then I cannot believe that anyone would stand up and say that what Hamas did was somehow justified by what uh, Israel has done uh, in the past. And so uh, we are, uh, to go back to your original question, we are a university. We are an educational institution. And um, I would just encourage people to read in as dispassionate a way as they can the actual history of uh, how hard people have tried. Let's talk about how Israel should respond right now. We're speaking five days into the war on Thursday, October 12th. And it looks like this is going to be the, be the beginning of a long and protracted war, potentially with other actors getting involved. The IDF has begun airstrikes on Hamas targets in Gaza. It has mobilized 300,000 reservists presumably preparing for a ground war. Every woman I know in Israel is alone with her children and in a bomb shelter because their husbands and their fathers are off to war. What should Israel's military strategy look like? Do you think a ground invasion is the right move? And, you know, the fact that there are more than 100 hostages there, including citizens of America and other countries, how does that figure in to their strategy at this moment? 
Well, I obviously can't tell the Israelis what to do at this point. I can tell you that in the past, with some of these Gaza crises, we were always concerned about an, a ground incursion because it is so dangerous. Uh, I was with uh, General uh, Jim Mattis earlier this morning, and he was talking about the fact that he, as a Marine, has done door-to-door, neighborhood-to-neighborhood fighting, and it's not pretty. And uh, it's not pretty for the civilians on the ground, for the IDF itself. It's, it's a really dangerous and difficult thing to do. Uh, I think this time uh, the Israelis are more than likely to to do something on the ground. Um, I can't advise them, but I would hope that, uh, and maybe the reason that they're taking some time rather than just lashing out, is to have a very good sense of what they intend to try to do. They do know a lot about Hamas and its organization and its leadership and and perhaps being uh, more surgical about what they go after and who they go after. I'm certain that the hostage crisis really complicates the whole matter because Hamas, in typical terrorist fashion, has uh, said they will execute hostages. And, of course, they might do exactly that, uh, given who they are. So uh, it seems to me that the Israelis are taking their time to, to plan how they will go about this. I'm glad that they've come to a unity government to try to deal with this because, as you know, the state of Israel has been divided in uh, the recent year or so. And um, after something like this, you really need to be unified. I suspect that there are conversations going on with the Qatari and uh, maybe Hamas and maybe even Pidge about uh, what to do about the hostages. Maybe something can be done there. Uh, the Egyptians would be involved um, in trying to help identify how to get rid of some of these tunnels and the like. Remember that Egypt uh, is no fan of Hamas. Hamas is, from their point of view, the Muslim Brotherhood operating in the Palestinian territories. And so I wouldn't jump to the conclusion that the Arabs in the area are uh, going to cry any tears for Hamas. Uh, the Hamas is not popular with these uh, these states uh, who have themselves suffered uh, very often um, with Hamas calling them all collaborators and so forth. The one thing that I will say is um, I hope that there can be some way to uh, think about the pressures on the civilians in uh, Gaza. And uh, sometimes uh, we were able to organize humanitarian pauses or the likes where people can get medicine and food. Uh, that kind of thing, I hope, is being thought through as well. But um, I'm not going to presume to tell the Israelis what they need to do. I think everybody thinks they need to destroy as much of Hamas as they possibly can. Right now, Israel has cut off food, electricity, and water to Gaza, saying that it's not going to be established, reestablished rather, until the hostages are released. Many people are calling on Egypt to allow refugees from Gaza into that country, and Egypt is refusing. Yeah. What do you make of that? But the, the Egyptians and the other Arabs have never been very kind about the idea of Palestinian refugees. Uh, Jordan is the one state. 70% of that population is actually uh, Palestinian. Uh, but um, it actually, Gaza, it's a, a longer story. But one of the reasons that Gaza is the awful place that it is is that the UN mission there has not been very well structured. And the UN, uh, the, the UNRWA, as it's called, 
has not always done things that would have made it easier for the people of Gaza to get out of refugee status and begin to get some help to build normal lives. And the consequence of the way that UNRWA functions is that Palestinians have been kept in refugee status. And there is also there have also been policies that lead to huge numbers of births so that Hania, the putative prime minister, has something like 13 brothers and sisters. He's got 11 kids. If and when we get to the place that we that Hamas has been weakened or or hopefully even destroyed, it would be a very good thing to think about what really might work for the people of Gaza. I think there was a moment of hope when the Israelis withdrew from Gaza in 2005. And oh, by the way, not just from Gaza, but four settlements in the West Bank as well. Yes. Because we wanted to make the point, and the Israelis agreed, that it wasn't going to be Gaza only. And uh, so maybe somebody will really take the interest of the truly depressed and, and difficult circumstance for the Palestinian people in Gaza seriously um, if Hamas can be uh, eliminated. In 2011, Israel traded 1,027 Palestinian prisoners, many of them hardened terrorists, in exchange for a single Israeli soldier, Gilad Shalit. What kind of precedent do you think that that set? And many people that I've spoken to over the past days are the parents and siblings and children of the hostages. And they're basically saying, that is what my government did. Do that for me now. What do you say to those people? What, like, how do you grapple with the moral question here? Well, I remember when uh, Gilashlit was taken course, because uh, we were uh, in office, and I remember the anguish. Uh, it, it says something good about the Israeli people and their government that they have a mantra that you don't want to leave one Israeli uh, behind. Um, I, I, I always find these questions very difficult because, you know, when you're in those circumstances, uh, it's hard to say, all right, you did the wrong thing to bring that person back home. But of course, it sets up a kind of perverse set of incentives for those who would take people and the like. Uh, uh, what we're hearing, at least about this particular uh, potential prisoner swap, is that it might be women and children for women and children. Uh, maybe that's more palatable uh, in some ways. But I've, I've always uh, been very, someone who was very careful. Uh, Israel remains a viable state through the will and the resilience and the toughness of the Israeli people and the grace of God. Because given where they sit with everyone since their founding trying to destroy them, I've always been a little cautious about telling them exactly uh, what, is, what is right and what is wrong. A lot of people are saying that this is Israel's 9-11 the death toll as of today, and I'm sure it will go up, stands at 1,200 people, which proportionally is 10 times the loss of life in America on 9-11. It would be as if 29,000 Americans died that day. That is the scale for Israel. And of course, you were national security advisor on 9-11. And one thing I was reading online today that I found really incisive and interesting was the notion that the choices that were made after that barbaric terrorist attack on this country 
were in retrospect, maybe not the right choices. People look at the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan. We could spend five hours talking about that. We're not going to. But things like the Patriot Act and other surveillance systems. What lessons do you draw from the policies that America pursued in the aftermath of 9-11 that could serve as a lesson or a warning for the Israelis in this moment? Yes. The first thing I would say is um, I've been saying to people, yes, 9-11, but plus because it's as if somebody had gone into the suburbs of uh, Buffalo and started massacring people. And so in that sense, uh, a much more kind of up-close and personal experience, I think, for Israelis. But I was the national security advisor on that day. And I will tell you, Barry, that the next day, the only thing that we thought was don't let it happen again. And, um, you know, if you are in a position of authority when 3,000 people die some of them jumping out of 30-story windows to their death, 80-story windows to their death. And uh, by definition, you didn't do enough. Uh, then you're going to do everything that you can not to let it happen again because you have such great remorse. And while I understand that remorse is not a policy, I really challenge those who say we tried to do too much. I really challenge those who say that the Patriot Act was the wrong response or that going into Afghanistan to try to clean out those terrorist nests so that we wouldn't be attacked again. Uh, we can talk about Iraq and, and uh, the implications of that. Iraq was actually a different set of security concerns. Fair but I just have to tell you, I, I heard somebody say once, a very important American leader, they led from fear. You bet we did. Because every mm. day you came in and every day there was a new plot line. And one day it was that there was going to be a radiological attack on Washington, D.C. on the weekend of October 30, October 31st. And another day it was that there was going to be a smallpox attack on the country. And the next day it was that botulinum toxin had been released into the White House. Yeah, we led from fear. And so um, while I understand those mm. who now want to second guess what were some very tough decisions, the president said, anything within our law and consistent with our values, we will do to protect the country. And my gratitude that there was not another attack on our territory in the time that we were there, my gratitude that I think we dismantled the kind of al-Qaeda that could do what they did, um, I'll take the criticism that we did too much. What are the answers or the lessons for the Israelis? Well, um, in some ways, um, we were uh, newer to this. Uh, there had not been an attack on the territory of the United States since the War of 1812. We had had, of course, the attacks on our embassies. We'd had the World Trade Center in 1993. But the shock to us was that our oceans didn't protect us in the way that we had always assumed. Israel, that's not the shock in Israel, because Israel has been under attack since its founding in 1948. The shock to Israel was that uh, something of this magnitude and brutality could happen across its borders 
when I think the Israeli uh, intelligence and Israeli military thought that there were, they could really protect the country. And I can imagine that that's the shock. And so now, and there will be a reckoning. There will be their equivalent of a 9-11 commission. I, I testified before ours. Uh, they will go back and they will look and what happened and why were Israeli outposts overrun and and was there too much reliance on technology, not on human intelligence and so on and so on. But for now, um, I, I think that the um, the focus of the country is in the right place, which is uh, to, in a unified way, try as, as uh, quickly as possible to make sure that Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad can't do this again. Obviously, it's going to be a lot of time before Israel has its version of a 9-11 commission, and yet a lot of people are starting to insist on answers to the question, how did the startup nation, how did the most militarily sophisticated country in the Middle East come to its knees in this way? What are some of those answers? I, I don't know, because I, I don't know what they were looking at. I will tell you this, sometimes it's a failure of imagination. It's the low-tech attack that is a problem. Uh, for us, it was the failure to imagine, imagine uh, airplanes flying into buildings, that somebody would use a civilian aircraft as a missile. It was just outside of our uh, imagination. And maybe this particular coordinated attack, uh, land, sea, air, drones, uh, uh, people on motorcycles, um, maybe it was just not uh, imaginable in that sense. But uh, that time will come again uh, for right now, as uh, as people have said, as President Biden has said, Israel has the right to defend itself. And that, that means uh, making sure that the terrorists are cleared from uh, those those villages and those towns, and then uh, doing their very best to destroy the Hamas. And it's not just the leadership, it's the infrastructure as well. It's the command and control for Hamas. It's, as I mentioned, these tunnels through which they go. There's some reports that there have been some um, Israelis, there's been some Israeli firing on the um, the supply lines up in the north uh, that Hezbollah might use. Uh, that happens on the Syrian border. That happens fairly frequently, actually. It's not unusual that Israel will just degrade those supply lines. So right now, uh, if I were in uh, a position to advise, which I'm not, but I will anyway, I would say that um, everybody should put aside the how did it happen unless it bears directly on can it happen again in this relatively short period of time, because all of the energy now needs to be on what is going to be a very difficult task of trying to root out Hamas and watching very carefully that northern border so that Hezbollah, uh, which George Tenet, our CIA director, once called the A-team of terrorism, um, doesn't decide that this is the time to take advantage of the situation. A few days before the attack, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan Biden's national security advisor, boasted that the Middle East region is quieter today than it has been in two decades. What is that? Is that a failure of the imagination? I have to say, I said similar things <laughs> because 
of the possibilities with the extension of the Abraham Accords negotiated by the Trump administration and then the possibility of uh, the United States making some kind of security arrangement with Saudi Arabia. Now Saudi Arabia would normalize relations with Israel. As we've been saying, the state of war between Israel and its Arab neighbors would have ended. I said not too long ago that uh, I didn't usually use the words optimism and Middle East in the same language in the same line, but I was uh, prepared to do it. Uh, what we have to remember is that um, that's one of the reasons this happened, because for the spoilers, for whom a peaceful Middle East in which Israel is a recognized country recognized member of the the Middle East where normal trade relations and travel and economic uh, relations could take place for the spoilers and uh, that means Iran and their surrogates that's the worst possible Middle East okay well let's talk about Iran which has come up a few times one of the answers to how this happened we can say with certainty is Iran and one of the foundational principles of the Obama administration and now the Biden administration was, I don't know what word to use, an embrace of Iran in the form of the Iran deal, which was sort of the foundation of both administrations' Middle East policies. Obama believed the Iranians to be the only power strong enough to sort of, I don't want to say run the region, but with America sort of receding as the world's policeman to step into the breach. The Biden administration, of course, has given Iran some $16 billion in recent weeks in exchange for Iran not pursuing its nuclear program, even though, in my view, they probably are. Is this going to cause a wholesale reassessment of that view? And talk to us about how that view came to be a sort of orthodoxy in the Democratic Party over the past two decades. Well, I believe that the Biden administration has done a lot of things right. In Ukraine, for instance, would have done it faster, but in Ukraine, I have no quarrel. I think trying to follow on to the uh, Abraham Accords and normalize relations with Saudi and Israel, very good. I've always said that um, even though I am always cautious about criticizing my successors because I know how hard it is in there, the Iran policy should have really been reset a long time ago. Uh, it could have been reset, for instance, when uh, the Iranian regime was uh, beating up its own people in the streets. Uh, in over, the Green Revolution. In the Green Revolution. And then the murder of activists, which then, and, and really people who were just trying to advocate for a better life. Uh, the, if you didn't know the nature of this regime, you saw it in, in the streets. And so um, I would have thought a reset was probably necessary then, but we could go to other elements about Iran. We know that Iran continues to stir trouble in southern Iraq. Uh, we know that Iran is the funder of Hamas and Pitch and uh, Hezbollah. And we know something else. We know that when the monies went back to Iran in the first Iran deal, that the Iranian activists themselves revealed that that money didn't go to the budget to help the Iranian people. It went to fund Hamas and Hezbollah. And so knowing that, I just don't really believe that a reset with Iran is wise policy. Uh, I never particularly supported the Iran nuclear deal, which I thought just gave Iran time to learn to enrich and reprocess. Let's give steel man for me. 
why the Obama administration and then the Biden administration since picking up that policy pursued the policy they did toward Iran? Like, what is the strongest yeah. version right. of that argument? Right. So it gotta, is so hard for yes, me to understand Yes, it. you're going to ask me to do something I actually ask my students to do all the time. So argue the other side. Yeah. So I'm going to try. Convince, I'm going to like, try. Articulate it for me. I, I think the argument that they would make is that Iran is uh, there to stay. It's a, a powerful and uh, dangerous uh, power in the region. And that by engagement with it and, and trying to give them some stake that perhaps you can mitigate some of the worst tendencies of the Iranian regime. I think that's the argument that uh, they would make. A little bit like you may not like this regime, but they're there and you have to deal with them. Um, frankly, after we left Afghanistan in the way that we did, a country, by the way, that has a 900-kilometer border with Iran, and why we would want to give up uh, military assets in a place that has a 900-kilometer border with Iran, I don't understand. But again, I'm making the argument, <laughs> not my own. Um, I think that would be the, the argument, that maybe you can, over time, make Iran from a revisionist power in the Middle East to, if not a status quo power, just one that is more neutral. I think that if you wanted to make that argument initially, uh, say early Obama administration, because we had tried to mm -hmm. get Iran into nuclear negotiations, uh, uh, we created the uh, P5, as it was called, mm -hmm. which was the, the uh, permanent members of the Security Council plus uh, Germany to try to negotiate the Iranian nuclear deal. By the way, we did have a Security Council resolution that said Iran should not be allowed to enrich and reprocess, signed on to by China and the, the Russians, and the administration gave that up in the first negotiations with Iran. But given all of that, I could say in the first instance, all right, give it a try. But repeatedly, Iran has shown now that this is not a policy that works with the Iranians. You, they are going to continue to be a revolutionary revisionist power. Uh, there are two Irans. There are the, uh, the Iranian government that we deal with and that shows up at international meetings. And then there are the bad boys, the Quds Force and the IRGC that goes around uh, funding Hamas to, to carry out uh, massacres of innocent civilians. And so at some point you have to say, uh, this, this isn't, isn't working. working. And um, even if I make the best argument uh, and accept that you might try that with the Iranians, uh, there's no evidence that the Iranians want to play by those rules. A lot of people sort of just tuning into this are asking, listen to Jake Sullivan a few days before the attack and said, yeah, things are looking up wow, there's actually like normalization between Israel and many Gulf states. It, it didn't seem that far off of a statement to make days before. Obviously, the whole world has changed. Um, but a lot of people are asking why now? And the answer is Saudi Arabia. Can you explain that a little yes. bit for people? Uh, Mary, I first went to Saudi Arabia in 1999, and I went as a director of the Chevron Corporation. And uh, I was going to some meetings there. They actually asked the CEO, would I want to go to the meetings because I was a woman? He said, yes, he thought I would want to go to the meetings. And I had to be escorted from my hotel room to the meetings and back to my hotel room because women couldn't be seen without men uh, escorts. Uh, Saudi Arabia is not a, don't get me wrong, a liberal democracy. And they, the, the um, M MBS has a, a, a darker side. 
But the liberalization of Saudi Arabia on many scores is pretty remarkable. It's a different place than it was uh, even just a few years ago. It is a place where women work. Um, I knew that something was going to happen happen have to happen when I was told that 50% of the college graduates over the last 10 years in Saudi Arabia have been women. There was no way women were going to put up with what was going on. So I can't tell you whether MBS was leading this or MBS was following the train, but the, the parade. But clearly, some things have happened. It's also the case that the effort to normalize with Israel was based on Saudi's interest in breaking out of its isolation as just a place that people go to drill for oil. You've seen them buy soccer or buy golf leagues. Right, they know and, their oil is going to run out at some point, exactly, and they're making all kinds of moves in anticipation. All of kinds that. of moves and trying to become a more quote normal state. And so, for all of those reasons, uh, if you want to improve technologically, the technological 800 800-pound gorilla in the in the region is Israel. And so you want to have a relationship Which has no with oil, but brain power. But brain power. And so uh, I do think what's happening in Saudi Arabia is notable. Uh, we should remember that there are still massive human rights problems in Saudi Arabia, and we should speak out for them or to them. But we uh, should also note that this is a place that's changing. We'll be right back. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. One of the things that happened in the aftermath of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan was this idea that America does more harm than good when it attempts to be the world's policeman. Do you think that that view is going to be reassessed, not just in light of Hamas's war against Israel, but Russia's war against Ukraine, China's potential war against Taiwan, and all of these other... I I saw a headline the other day that said America's new Cold War. I'm like, new Cold War? The world's new Cold War? I'm like, it's a hot Hot war. war. There's burning places all over the world. How do you think we're going to reassess that sort of fundamental idea that American power is fundamentally a source for stability in the world? Well, I I fully understand. And I was in office and partly responsible for some of the decisions that we took uh, in the Bush administration. But I would say this, uh, first of all, about Iraq and Afghanistan. Well, if you really think the world is better off with Saddam Hussein murdering a million people and putting them in mass graves, uh, be my guess. If you really think it was a better Afghanistan when women were beaten in stadiums given to the Taliban by the UN and women couldn't go to school and girls couldn't go to school, well, be my guess. So yes, the United States is not a perfect power. There's no such thing. But I would argue that on balance, the United States has been a force for stability in the world, that a lot of what we think of as a stable international system, not to mention a prosperous one, 
is because the United States has been willing to step up and to try to be the provider of a security commons, the provider of a, an economic commons, sometimes with not much benefit to ourselves. And so when I hear this, I think, you really think the world's better with the United States stepping back? Well, take a look out of your window at Vladimir Putin. Take a look out of your window at Hamas. Take a look out of your window at what uh, Xi Jinping is doing in the South China Sea or in Taiwan. You really want the United States to step back? That's what you're going to get. And oh, by the way, it's not just American power, but it's also American compassion. The United States has been the largest food aid donor in the world for decades. One of the things I'm most proud of is the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief that saved 25 million, 25 million lives in Africa. And that doesn't even count the uh, orphans, uh, the people who would have been orphaned and the like. Uh, when we think about not just what the U.S. government has done, I'm going to have a chance to, to be honored at the Points of Light, which uh, President George H.W. Bush and Mrs. Barbara Bush started, to recognize American civic society and uh, citizens who do good in the world. And so America's not perfect. And very, you know, I, I come from Segregated Birmingham, Alabama. I was a little girl at a time when you could not go to a movie theater or to a restaurant. I had a, talking of terrorism, I had a classmate killed in the 16th Street bombing of that church in Birmingham in September of uh, 1963. It's just been the 60th anniversary of that. So I don't look at the United States through rose-colored glasses, but I can tell you there is no country like it on the face of the earth with this kind of power and this kind of capability that has tried, sometimes a little bit clumsily, sometimes a little bit failingly, but has tried to provide uh, for a more prosperous and democratic and safer world. And sometimes the, the thing that worries me most is our impatience. When I hear that Afghanistan was our longest war, well, no, actually our longest war would have been Korea where we are still in an armistice and still protecting the uh, Korean Peninsula, I'm worried. I'm worried that there aren't leaders who are willing to stand up and say, if you really think that America can step back, look at what that world will look like. And I believe that Americans carry simultaneously in their heads two very different thoughts. One is, haven't we done enough? We defeated the Soviet Union, we uh, unified Germany, we liberated Eastern Europe, uh, we were able to defeat at least Al-Qaeda and their kin, uh, ISIS, Can't, haven't we done enough? Some, can't somebody else do it? And I understand that sense of exhaustion, if you will. But on the other hand, Americans carry in their heads, I can't watch Syrian babies choke on, on get nerve gas. I can't watch a massacre of uh, people in Storod. I can't watch as a large country decides to extinguish its smaller neighbor to rebuild an empire. And then Americans say, all right, if not us, then who? And under those circumstances, Americans can be led to take this uh, burden, if you want to call it that, or this obligation to be a part of a more stable world. And I'm just looking for American leaders who are willing to say that. When America steps back, others obviously step in to fill the vacuum. Explain, if you would, the reality of the current situation with Russia. We've touched on Iran, but with Russia, your area of expertise, and also China. Well, you're seeing the reemergence of great power conflict. 
something that um, I didn't think I was going to see again um, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. But great powers bring a lot of uh, a lot of chaos with them because they bring a lot of military power and they bring economic assets. And we're seeing uh, a Russia that, even though its uh, armed forces are really quite terrible, is still able to wreak a tremendous destruction. The only reason that uh, we are where we are now is because of the bravery of the Ukrainian people who are willing to fight for a world in which big powers don't extinguish their neighbors, and we owe them our support. They're not asking for one American boot on the ground. They're just saying, help us to do this. And by the way, if Putin wins this war, you can be guaranteed that countries to which we have an Article 5, that is an attack upon one, is an attack upon all obligation, will be next in line. And we will be dragged back in. You have China, which uh, is uh, threatening Taiwan, Xi Jinping, who sees himself as in the pantheon of Chinese leaders next to Mao. That means he has to restore China. He restored Hong Kong to China. It's just a province of China these days. And he wants to do the same for Taiwan. Who's going to stop him? Who's going to deter him? Because nobody wants to see that shooting war. And the United States is the only country with our values, with our interests, that can do this. Our allies, and we have good allies. We have a strengthened NATO. Who would have ever thought that Finland and Sweden would be a part of NATO? We have allies and friends in the Indo-Pacific, like Australia and like India and like Japan in the Quad. So we have not just our own power, but they can't do it without us. And so I often say to myself, uh, Barry, I know that there are those who think it's politically smart now to talk about, you know, well, we should just pay attention to our own uh, business or, oh, by the way, Ukraine isn't important. China's the only thing that's important. I just like to, to see the day when somebody elected on that platform has to say to the American people, the victory uh, the victory march that Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin are now undertaken because Ukraine has been defeated and I could have stopped it. Is that really a speech you're going to want to make to the American people? So I would really suggest to those who want to lead us to think twice about uh, arguing that American power is not necessary and that we can uh, can pay attention to our own uh, to ourselves. And I would say to those who say American power is not good, I would say, do you have a better idea? Um, is that what you would say to the 29 Republican lawmakers who wrote that letter last month to the White House Office of Management and Budget opposing further aid to Ukraine? Uh, yes, that's precisely what I would say to them and a few others as well. And I'd say one other thing, Mary. You know, I like to, to tell people there are three dates that I keep in mind. One is uh, a war broke out in 1914, and by 1917, we'd been dragged in, despite the fact that we didn't want to be. A war broke out in 1938 in Europe, and by 1941, we were dragged in, despite the fact that we did not want to be. And then on 2000, in 2001, we thought that we had bought a peace dividend with the end of the Cold War, and that war came to us. And so there is simply no way for America... To, uh, to get out of the business of keeping the peace. And I hope we, we understand that. As you mentioned earlier in the conversation, Israel has been in intense internal 
conflict over what some call necessary judicial reform, which, what others call a constitutional crisis. We're not going to get into that conversation, but I can't remember a time in my life other than, frankly, the pull out of Gaza, um, maybe the Camp David Accords and the idea of the peace process, where there's more, been more internal division inside of Israel. And you could make the argument that that internal division was noticed by Hamas. What kind of lessons should Americans take from what we're seeing right now in Israel about what internal, the, the kind of danger, true danger, not culture war danger, that, that that kind of internal division can create? There is no doubt that when the bad guys out there, the authoritarians, the troublemakers, the revisionist states, think that America is preoccupied or looking inward, that you start to get uh, bad behavior. And so I would say, could we just get our act together? You know, could we just release the nominations and the confirmation of all of those flag officers who are, whose files are sitting on the desk of one Alabama senator because he has some bone to pick. You know, pick another bone. We need our American military leadership intact. And I would say to uh, those who uh, seem to want to debate every small issue and, and not really pay attention to what's going on out there in the world, this is going to require a unified effort. The, the one thing we had going for us for the entire period of the Cold War, and it's why we ultimately won it, we had a lot of differences around this tactic vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union or that tactic vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union, but we knew what we were fighting and we knew who we were, and we knew that uh, the Soviet Union's victory would be uh, a, a very bad outcome for our values and for our interests. And for the most part, in a bipartisan fashion, we hung together. We're going to have to do that again, not to mention the divisions within parties over these measures. Because if we're going to enter this very dangerous world in a way that we can begin to roll back some of the damage that has been done, we are going to have to uh, look hard at our defense uh, industry base, which has eroded, our shipbuilding capability, which has eroded. We're going to have to look at the fact that the for the second straight year, our armed forces are missing their targets for recruitment for the um, for each of the services of recruiting to the volunteer force. We have a lot of work to do. This is this is serious, and uh, we need to get serious about it. One of our interns at the Free Press is a Stanford student. She was at the vigil this week on campus, and she saw you speak, and you said this. This attack on Israel was also an attack on the United States of America. And I think, unlike the Cold War, we don't have a sense intrinsically of why that is, especially among young people. Explain, if you would, why. Why was this also attack an attack on the United States of America, and why should it matter to every single American, not just Jewish Americans? It was an attack on a country with whom we have so many ties of kinship and of tradition and of values. 
it was an attack on a country. There are reasons that Americans died there, because Americans go to Israel, and it's a it's a part of us, and we are a part of uh, Israel. But it was also an attack on decent values that I would like to think, as America, we have defended and upheld. And that is that uh, there should never be a terrorist attack on innocent people in which you do the most awful things that we've seen, really, since the horrors of uh, before World War II. It was an attack on America because it was an attack on American friend and ally. It was an attack on America because it was an attack on Americans who happened to be there. And it was an attack because of an attack on who we are as a people, our values, not just our interests, but our values. And um, it's in that vein that I feel tremendous, um, not just sympathy for the victims there, but solidarity with them. And I just want to say to every Israeli family, to the Israeli people, I've actually been in touch with some of my Israeli friends. Um, You're in my prayers constantly. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. For more coverage of the situation currently unfolding in Israel, please head over to the free press at thefp.com, T-H-E-F-P.com. We have a very simple goal in mind with all of our journalism right now. It's to tell the truth and to tell it plainly without spin. We're working hard to give you the kind of independent, honest journalism that you've come to expect from this show and from the free press. So if you believe in our work, please support us by becoming a subscriber at vfp.com today. See you soon.